News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. Hi, welcome to FAQ NYC. This is Christina Greer here reporting from Dover, Delaware. And with me today, I have my co-host, Harry Siegel. Hi, Harry Siegel. Hello. Coming from the great state of New York. And our executive producer, Alex Brooklyn, is on the line. Alex, how you doing? Pretty good. I'm looking at a field with some dapple of sunlight strewn about in North Carolina. Ready to come back to the city to see what's new and what's old and what's gone. Yeah, I think both of us have a little bit of FOMO slash we're just itching to get back to New York. I'm enjoying my time away, but it's definitely hard to not be in the city, especially at this moment. I want to get us started. This week was a a wild week, um, as the past few weeks have been. We still have the backdrop of the coronavirus. We still have rampant unemployment. The summer has not yet hit, but it's going to be hotter than July. We had seven shootings across the city of New York in one night. Camps still haven't been called into play. Some youth employment is still abysmal. And I don't think the beaches and the pools are really going to be open for folks to enjoy because of social distancing and COVID. So all of that, we had some gains though this week. In good news, I was going to say, the monster of the week, which has been since we started this podcast, kind of like the little evil lurking under every rock, you find 50A. The privacy law that allowed cops' records, violent records, or behavioral records to be obfuscated from the public. And that's been repealed this week, something that has been promised for years and years and just sort of skirted around and sidestepped by the de Blasio administration. So that's a huge, a huge win for a lot of folks and activists and organizers who've been working on this uh, for quite some time. And I think there's separate legislators to capitalize on the moment that's happening across the United States and across the world. So here's a really brief history of 50A. Eric Garner can't breathe. And de Blasio, after that, talks about giving his son Dante the talk. Tensions with the police become very high. The NYPD discovers, discovers a new interpretation of a 50-year-old law, 50A. They say, hey, actually, this law that everyone has always understood one way, state law, for five decades, actually means all the discipline records involving police are actually confidential. De Blasio immediately and conveniently picks this idea up and says, we have no choice but to, to accept this, but we'll ask Albany to overturn it. This thing that uh, once you read it that way, you can't unsee it. Insanely, the New York courts end up accepting this interpretation. Despite this, Eric Garner's killer, Daniel Pantaleo's own disciplinary records are weak illegally now because of this to the press. And de Blasio swears he'd love nothing more than for Albany to change this, but what can he do? So flash forward to 2020, Democrats finally controlled the state Senate. They didn't do this in their first year of control. But now in the aftermath of George Floyd's killing, and many, many days of street protests now, suddenly the state Senate is compelled to act. Andrew Cuomo, the governor, says he'll sign whatever they give him, and lawmakers have finally passed something that would repeal this 50-year-old law that's become a poisonous one over the last five years and like a great defense hedge for the NYPD. And so he hasn't signed it yet, but he swears he will, and that's the moment we're at. Finally, 
de Blasio asked today about this blames his reinterpretation on his own corporation counsel, basically the lawyer for New York City uh, at the time, Zachary Carter, who'd been one of the few most prominent African-American members of his administration, which is just on the face of it, atrocious. Like lawyers don't act on their own. They act on behalf of their client and his client was the mayor. But that's the de Blasio way and his retconned explanation for uh, why he'd been so terribly on the wrong side of this thing, which thanks largely to the street protesters is finally changing. Well, I think what's so great about what's happened in the past few days is that, you know, protest politics does lead to electoral politics changes and policy changes. And we've seen it happen pretty quickly in Minnesota. We've definitely seen it happen in New York. And I don't know if 50A ever would have been repealed if we didn't have the past 12 days of New Yorkers taking to the streets and making elected officials and certain other residents of the city feel slightly uncomfortable. So kudos to everyone who took to the streets to make this happen. If memory serves, it was five days ago that Cuomo said, of course he supports the uh, the repeal and he would sign whatever came to his desk. He hadn't said that in the preceding five years. I do think that, and you guys might disagree with me on this, that had the protests not been such an urgent threat to the actual functioning of these American cities, and that includes some of the more... Some people are calling them violent. I call them destructive. Some of those acts across the country, I don't think that quote-unquote peaceful protests, as we'd seen time and time again, would have been anything but ignored had it not turned into something that would have seen all of our American cities become unfunctioning if this weren't to change, because we've seen protests like this time and time again, and which without the actual threat of shutting down these cities, nothing happened before, but it is happening now. I I think that threat is always there. I think we felt this Ferguson in 2014. We sort of had a, a rolling series of these. I think Occupy had real elements of this. I think we saw after Eric Gardner taking bridges and uh, highways and that sort of thing as a tactic. Obviously, like modulating protests and what happens at the margins of them is, is always a complicated thing. I've had a long argument with Stephen Thrasher, who I'd like to have on at some point, who's a, a professor and a journalist, and I worked with years ago at The Voice about whether or not we were stuck in the same cycle we'd seen since 2014, or if this was something new, with me feeling really pessimistic about this. Like, we've seen this script before, and it's really starting to look like something different. Some of the shifts in public opinion have been pretty remarkable, from one-third of Americans saying that Black people are likely to be treated worse by police, to a majority in, I believe, three years. That's a big shift. You're seeing... Big institutions like uh, the military and NASCAR being like, no, no Confederate flags. Those are hate symbols. And the Marines. I feel like we might be seeing the start of a new American consensus here, but what do I want Well, listen, I feel like I know a lot being a black person in this hateful country. And we have to be honest about the backdrop of, you know, we've got a white supremacist in the Oval Office. That has been a wake-up call for a lot of white Americans who just didn't want to necessarily pay attention to it in 2016 during the campaign phase, but I've seen how things have shaken out. But also, it's like elected officials, some of whom I've talked to off the record, they agree with Black Lives Matter, they want to support the protests, but, you know, some of them, white elected officials, know that their white constituents have a very small appetite and very slim patience level for unrest 
in the city because the city is structured such that it serves them and it's supposed to be peaceful. And so if we think about what State Senator Zellner Myrie said last week on the podcast, where it's like, you know, if there is no justice, then you don't get peace. And I think a lot of New Yorkers are following that thread. You know, that's a reckoning and a wake up call for a lot of elected officials and a lot of residents who they haven't necessarily played footsie with white supremacists, but they've definitely turned a blind eye to a lot of the policies of the president and a lot of the rhetoric. And so now it's bubbled into literally their front yard. We heard this on Brian Lair, lots of people calling in, wringing their hands, and they're frightened and what to do. And says, well, you don't get to have the country you want anymore if so many percentages of the population in New York City and elsewhere just have zero equity and live in a constant state of fear and trauma. And so we've reached this fork in the road where we're now seeing legislators want to address these inequities very quickly. I mean, welcome to 2020, all of a sudden the Confederate flag is bad, and all of a sudden we need to figure out how to do equitable policing. But, I mean, for some, it's better late than never. But so many of these corporations who are rushing to say the right things and put out statements of diversity and reconfirm, and, oh, I don't even want to get into the number of texts I've gotten from good liberals who feel some kind of way about this particular moment. And I was like, okay, well, this has been happening for God knows how long, but this is the week that you need to text me your woes to make sure that we're still friends. I don't know what that's about, but I think that's the whole, like the white guilt that I'm supposed to just text back and say like, you're fine, which I'm not doing. I refuse. And that's a whole nother podcast episode with or without you guys. But we're at this moment where I think a lot of people want this to be resolved because they want to get back to whatever the normal was. And for a lot of white Americans, it's peace. It's peace to not have to think about these things. The last piece though is, so many white protesters went to these protests as allies with good intentions, and they were just going to march peacefully as allies, hand in hand, and they were greeted with pepper spray, zip ties, arrests, batons, yeah. or worse. And there Rubber was a bullet in it. This is Here, like, yeah. we're, this is just, we're, we're peaceful. And it's like, yes, welcome to being black in America. You weren't doing anything, but all of a sudden you got the shit beat out of you by the state and they're telling you that they can't. And we saw how police officers were just with reckless abandon beating everyone, black, white. And normally that's it's reserved for black protesters and not for white. And this was, I think, the first little taste that a lot of white protesters got. And they're really just outraged and they can't believe how egregious police officers across the country have behaved when they were literally just marching peacefully to say, we support our allies and our friends and our coworkers. I do think we got a taste when you had Cecily McMillan go to jail after Occupy. And all of a sudden, there's this young white girl in Rikers watching other women just be abandoned to miscarriages without getting medical attention and just other traumatic atrocities that happen in Rikers Island. And then you got another taste during Eric Garner. And I do think that those protests had a cumulative effect. And it, when these started, there was a fear that it was the same old script. And it is just very clearly different. And I think that difference is forced because going back to normal between COVID and what the difference was when it affected Black and Latino in such huge numbers, I don't think anybody at this point, once that's all been exposed, can go back to a normal. Like the normal is no longer allowed. It, it can't happen anymore. I mean, we'll see, but what well, won't happen if we don't let up, but we have to keep our foot on the gas because institutions are strong and stable for a reason. So if we, if we do let up, things actually can and will go back to normal. 
It was just very cheap to paint Black Lives Matter on sidewalks, to put out corporate statements, and to make long-term vows, right? And this is what stabilizing institutions, the want to maintain themselves and the people who feed off them do. I think generally everything gets about 20 years to restore confidence. The Knicks are an obvious exception here. Uh-huh. And <laughs> if you fail to do that over 20 years, you end up getting different results. So these cycles repeat and you have people warning about what could happen and they sound like Cassandra's right up until the moment where they don't. And we, we seem to have hit that moment. And as Chrissy is saying, I couldn't agree more. Like the important thing is thoroughness and consistency and continuing to put in work and to hold these representatives in particular, right? Like our lawmakers accountable for what they're doing. And you can see already the ways in which they act differently and signify differently when they are held to account. And there's a sense that otherwise the ground is going to get pulled out from under them. The other win this week was that race-based 911 calls are now a crime, which is good because originally as it was going to be offered, it was just going to be false 911 calls. And I thought that that was pretty dangerous in the hands of our current prosecutors and our current NYPD, that they would have almost like another weapon if it was so generalized as any kind of false calls. But I'm glad that they um, added race-based false 911 calls. Your thoughts on this? I'm Chris? curious how that plays out. How so? There's so many different strange and screwy circumstances. We've seen too many of these videos of people using the law as a, a racial bludgeon, including with these 911 calls. And I think going at those is great. And you have to have some limiting principle. I know that frequently legal proceedings that have some element of motive built into what the crime is can end up in all sorts of gummy and jam circumstances. And this can depend on how people perceive race at the time and all sorts of other weird stuff. So this seems fundamentally good to me. And I'm confident we're going to have some rip from the headlines, law and order episodes, if we still have cop shows in not too long that, that, that stem from this. We will see. Well, cops has been canceled. So that's awesome. Um, because that's just a propaganda nonsense machine. But what I think this law will ultimately do, and I understand that there's some sticky situations that'll be a little unclear, but, you know, we've figured it out with hate crimes and with hate speech. But also I think it'll help white Americans especially think twice before they call the police when they see an eight-year-old selling lemonade. Like, all of a sudden, it's a, you know, a punishable offense. Why do the police need to intervene when you see a black child selling lemonade or candy or whatever it may be? And if you decide to do that, then you need to be uh, able to receive whatever new consequences there are, because there's just far Uh, too many instances where people have used, white Americans especially, have used the police as their own personal bodyguard structure. And we've had deadly results because of that. And so if it is going to take someone to to know this new law and realize, well, maybe, maybe an eight-year-old selling lemonade, A, is none of my business, and B, not punishable by the police to intervene, then I'm happy with something like that. Or a, a man with binoculars who asked you to put your dog in a leash. If that's the result, it's just overdue. I'm still staggered. I mean, staggered in a way I wasn't by videos of police violence, which I was very aware of. But some of the 911 calls to me, like that many people calling the cops about that much petty bullshit or, or, or nothing at all, and doing so just plainly, nakedly as a threat, 
you know, as we saw in the Central Park bird watching video, where she says, I'm going to call 911 and tell them there's a black man threatening me. I mean, there's no, no ambiguity there. Those have been stunning to me to realize that that happens often enough that it gets captured this often. Yeah, well, I mean, also it's like as a black person who lives in a major city with uh, police departments such as the NYPD, there's nothing more dangerous than a white person, male or female, with the phone. Like, I mean, there are a lot of things more dangerous than that, but the the phone is a dangerous entity because a white man can say, I'm going to call the police and there's a black woman threatening me, and we know that he will get a response. So the gender dynamic still actually gets a little wonky, but especially when it's a white woman to a black male, because this country is pretty ahistoric, and we have to remember, you know, Emmett Till is a 14-year-old who's brutally mutilated, shot, murdered, drowned, and castrated because he allegedly whistled at a white girl. And who we later found out was completely lying and she's still alive with grandkids just chilling after she's admitted that she lied. And so it's like, yeah, there's a certain level of freedom that white Americans have, which is sort of, this is part of what's the undercurrent of some of the passion that we see in the streets. It's like, there is no true freedom and we keep seeing it on camera time and time again that this country is completely inequitable. And so I think, especially this younger generation, they're over it. They don't want to work within the institutions anymore. They don't want to trim the hedges and make this rotten bush beautiful. They're saying rip it up by the roots. And I think that's this interesting tension that we have because even black Americans of a certain age still believe that like, oh, well, you know, we can sort of reform institutions. And I think a lot of younger folks are like, no, you can't. We've got 401 years of data that says we can't. So so this week, um, I had the pleasure of calling Al Bragg in Harlem, USA, as they call it. He's a visiting professor at New York Law School, but he's also the former chief deputy attorney general uh, in New York State. And he also happens to be a candidate for the Manhattan DA. But we talked about sort of protests, uh, policing, the repeal of 50A, and next steps for New York City. So take a listen. Okay, welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Christina Greer, reporting in from Dover, Delaware. And with me today is Al Bragg, old-time friend, visiting professor at New York Law School, former chief deputy attorney general for New York State, and a candidate for the Manhattan DA's office. Al, thank you so much for joining me today on FAQ. Thank you so much for having me. Good to talk to you. I'm sitting here in, in good old Harlem, USA. Um, you know, we've just had some legislative gains and looking forward to, to more reforms, but obviously in the middle of what is really probably the worst two-week stretch or really two-month stretch in terms of police accountability and the things we've been seeing. Um, so very happy to be on to, to talk about how to address these parade of horribles. Yeah, I mean, I left New York on March 29th, and that's the night that everything, all the uprisings happened and people really took to the streets. And I was like, is it me? Was I the one who was sort of keeping New York quiet? Because the minute I left, everyone took to the streets. So maybe <laughs> maybe it was me who was the glue that was keeping New York dormant. But we're awake now, and I'm excited about the winds of change. But I want to ask you a little bit more about the protests and sort of what you've been seeing in Harlem, USA. Obviously, things are a bit different depending on what borough you're in. But what's your context of the protests that we've seen for roughly two weeks now? Almost two weeks. So I'll, I'll start with the, the sort of ones where I was. You know, just this past Sunday, a group of Harlem churches uh, marched from Convent Avenue Baptist Church down to the New York State Office building. And, you know, what I experienced was 
a lot of energy, a lot of frustration and real anger at the injustice. It sort of took me back to my first couple of protest experiences. First was with the church, but marching the same streets in Harlem when, it, when I was a teenager. And then after that, related to Rodney King when I was in college. And so, you know, the question is, are we at an inflection point? And I think that, you know, it's harnessing this energy, which is great. We've seen it around all the boroughs, all of the country and really internationally. So how to harness this power. And I think we've already seen some of it. I mean, the state legislature, you know, repealing 50A. I mean, there's a direct line between the protest activism of the past few weeks, obviously building upon years uh, of organizing and advocacy by great leaders to repeal 50A. So I just think we have to keep up. We have to do all of the above approach. We need to be you know, protesting in the streets. We need to be suing cities and police departments. We need to be prosecuting and we need to be pressing our legislative bodies. We need it all. Yeah, I want to get to all of those, but you know, I want to back up with protests because I keep getting the question, like, is this different? You know, is this inflection point different? And for me, it does feel different just because we've never had sustained protests for this long in this many cities across the country. Does it feel different for you? I mean, sadly, we've been protesting for years, uh, decades even. But do you feel like we're at a different point in New York City right now since you've been it, at different it, types of it protests? It does feel different. Uh-huh. It does feel different. I think the sustained length of the protests the number of protests, the organic nature of many of the protests. Obviously, there's a lot of organization going on, but, you know, there have just been some local protests in my community that just sort of grew out of almost energy on the Internet or literally going to the grocery store and just, let's go do this now. Mm -hmm. uh, so it feels different. I feel like there is a we cannot go on like this anymore moment. So I, I agree. I agree. It feels different. And, and marching and seeing the people and talking and energy I'm hopeful, but having been here, sort of here before, my hope is tempered with caution. Yeah, indeed. I think that's the feeling of quite a few, not just New Yorkers, but Black people in general, just because protest politics has definitely led to policy changes and changes in electoral politics. But it has to be this sustained effort where you can't let up. You can't take your foot off the gas because then it seems like the momentum just ends. Exactly. Exactly. So, we, but, we, we need to keep it going. But I mean, talking about success, though, I mean, the other side of the coin is these protests have led to the repeal of 50A, something that has been talked about and stalled. And we've had some mealy mouth legislators who couldn't really figure out how to get it done. And somehow people took to the streets and in less than two weeks, it's been repealed. What do you what do you say to that? Phenomenal. I mean, and let's talk about the about faces, right? The governor speaking out for the repeal uh, and the mayor and sometimes, you know, suggesting that they've been in this all along, which is not, not <laughs> accurate. Um, but, but to hey, that I know. say, baby, who are you going to believe, me or your eyes? And I'm going to say right. my eyes. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, although it's, it is so wild how they could, you know, with a straight face suggest that they've been leading the charge. So I've been working on 50A. 50A, when I was at the attorney general's office, you know, overseeing investigations of police conduct that led to deaths of civilians, we released a lot of information when we didn't charge officers at the end of an investigation. We charged, we didn't do a report, we did the case, but where we didn't charge, we put a lot of information into the public domain. And that was the request. When we started, we met with, you know, Communities United for Police Reform and Ms. Carr and Ms. Bell and others. And they said, look, 
we're tired of people saying grand jury secrecy 58 we can't tell you everything and so we really pioneered the sort of transparency in these cases and i was very proud of it but i will tell you i had lots of threats of litigation from police departments and other law enforcement saying you can't say what happened in your investigation because of 50A. And, you know, we pressed on and said, kind of said, hey, we're the attorney general. Sue us if you want to. And we thought we had the, the law on our side. But, wow, to, to, to get rid of that argument. And, of course, we were the attorney general. So we're coming from a point of being in law enforcement. You know, we shouldn't have to have, no one should have to fight for basic transparency. And so now we can get out. We look at Officer Pantaleo, who choked Eric Garner. We looked at the officer in George Floyd. The histories of these officers is so important to know. It's so important for good government. So the government shouldn't have been resisting. And it is so important for community to hold folks accountable. And I'd like to say one more word on this because this was very frustrating to me. I have the honor of representing Ms. Carr and other police accountability organizers in a case against Mayor de Blasio and the police department seeking details about the transparency, uh, the details about Mr. Garner's death and sort of medical care. Who were the officers who were there? We know an officer lied and said no arrest, no force was used on the arrest, and we're seeking those details. And so when I talk about this about face from the mayor, when he's applauding the Minneapolis mayor for firing the police officers, we are now six years in, and we still do not know basic information about what happened on the day of Eric Garner's killing. And the city has used 50A to stymie those efforts. And so we have a new day. And I'm so happy that that argument is one they can no longer use. Right. And I'm interested to see how 50A will play into the mayor's race next year. Explicitly what you just said. I mean, I think a lot of New Yorkers have been so frustrated that so much time has gone past. And the fact that Pantaleo pulled a check for over five years of taxpayer money after we, we've seen what he did on camera. And Chrissy, we, we, we have uh, the officer, so in the Pantaleo's administrative hearing, a, a deputy commissioner for the NYPD, so this is the NYPD's own person, found that Officer D'Amico lied, went back to the station after the arrest and the death, filled out a form saying that no force was used in the arrest. He didn't know there was a video then, right? Right. Well, that's a bald-faced lie, and the deputy commissioner called that out. To our knowledge, I mean, like, what, what's happened to D'Amico? You know, mm-hmm. he's still on the force. Is what is he being used? And there were also two sergeants who reportedly lied to internal affairs investigators and said that Mr. Garner was not in distress during the arrest. So that's that's the lawsuit I was talking about. That's what we're seeking in that. And 58 has been used as a roadblock. And we were we thought we had good arguments to overcome it, but now, thanks to the legislature, thanks to the organizers, thanks to the protests. That argument is set aside and we will see, uh, we'll see, we'll see what the city says now. Well, before I let you go, I want to ask sort of what's next. So where do we go from here? I mean, listen, it already feels like it's going to be a long, hot summer, hotter than July. I mean, we have the backdrop of COVID. We've got the backdrop of rampant unemployment in New York City. We've got, you know, possibly no camps, very few summer youth employment programs. There was just a shooting of seven different people in various parts of the city just a few days ago. So it, it feels like it's hot already. Yes. And we're not even technically in summer. So where do you think we're going as a city based on the protests, based on this repeal of 50A? I mean, sort of putting it all together for us. 
So we need to take a step back and think about the entire criminal justice system and how we have, you know, just a, a bloated, unjust system that criminalizes poverty and race and that punishes it doesn't make us safer. So we're having a discussion now, right, about resources. Uh, and I think that's very important. So my, my mom was an educator. My dad ran homeless shelters. We need to invest in communities, summer jobs, housing, uh, food insecurity. And we need to get the police out of, uh, you know, earlier this summer, but it seems like months ago now, you know, we're talking about the police were involved in social distancing enforcement. And I and others testified to the city council. So that's crazy. It's a public health issue. We need a public health solution. That list is long, right? Mental health, homelessness, the thing we need to get the police out of. So I think that's a that's a conversation that's getting momentum. And I think that's also going to momentum because of the protests. We need to keep that going. We also need to think about the role of local prosecutors and how they handle the cases. So the first, the budget conversation shrinking the system, hopefully it's preventative. Um, but for, for instances that they do happen, and whether that's police use of force, or police truth-telling and not truth-telling, we need local prosecutors to have independence, to have separate units that are not working with the police, where prosecutors will look independently and objectively. And then, uh, and this goes back to the 58 transparency point, report out to the public on what they find or charge officers where there's misconduct and then track it, track it, have an early warning system. If there's an officer who you know uh, is has engaged in misconduct, don't use that officer as a witness. I know that sounds so basic, but that's happening every day in our city. So I think the discussion about shrinking the system is fundamental, and we need to do that. Um, we need to invest in our communities, and then we need to talk about and hold accountable our local officials who either investigate the police, in the case of district attorneys, or our mayors, as you mentioned, will we'll have a you know, election season coming up, we need to find out what all the candidates are saying about how they would manage the police department and how they would have objectivity in, it, in oversight. Okay, last question, because I know you've got to go, but I really appreciate you spending time with us on FAQ. I'm talking to Al Bragg. So, Al, there's a conversation about prosecuting protesters. Where do you fall on that? And what's the job of a, a DA or, or a enforcement agency um, to prosecute protesters? Yeah, we need to be promoting protest. One of my first cases as a lawyer was representing members of the the Onondaga Nation suing the state police. The state police broke up a a peaceful political and religious protest and used excessive force in doing so, and we sued them. That was 20 years ago. So it breaks my heart. Here we are 20 years later seeing police run over uh, protesters and prosecutions uh, following. So I actually was, was proud to sign a joint letter with the other Manhattan DA candidates, um, you know, talking about Cy Vance and telling Cy Vance, Cy Vance wanted to, to change the law, the governor unilaterally changed the law by executive order to allow him to hold in custody people who have been arrested just to basically saying, hey, I should be able to not offer them bail. It's one, unlawful in that, you know, you have the separation of powers principles. Uh, and two, as you know, Chrissy, our law is about return to court. And his argument was the suggestion that they're all dangerous. And so I need this extra authority. So I'm concerned about sort of executive power grabs and people exploiting the, um, you know, obviously pandemic crisis and police accountability crisis, but to exploit it to continue to over-prosecute and to try to grab more prosecutorial power is something that I was, you know, kind of proud to stand as a unified front with the other district attorney candidates 
again, to Vance's position on that. Yeah, I, I, I like this idea of a unified front just because I think it also helps increase voter trust and voter turnout to see that it's not just about politics, but a, about the mission of really rethinking the office. And I think so many New Yorkers, especially residents of Manhattan, have been very disappointed uh, with many of the cases that the current Manhattan DA has decided not to prosecute and been even more so disappointed with the cases that he has decided to. So, Al, I just want to thank you again for joining us. Any last thoughts you want to leave us with? I I just want to encourage everyone to keep on pressing, right? This all of the above approach. We have to keep the protests to the folks in the legislature. Keep on. I mean, there's other stuff. The role I had at the attorney general's office, the special prosecutor role, they're, they're looking to codify that and make that a law. So it's not just something that could be you know changed by governor. We've got a chokehold legislation at both the federal and state level. The Congressional Black Caucus introduced a bill, a federal bill, lots of reform. So we need to keep pressing, keep protesting. Um, keep suing, keep passing laws. We need all of it to get the structural reform we need. And just thank you to you for all the work you do, your commentary on New York One, this podcast, your scholarship. I mean, a lot of this, we need the people protesting and doing all the work and all of us. And I love scholar activists like you who can give us the the, the sort of grounding, but also be out in the streets. Um, So we just have to keep pressing. We have to keep on keeping on. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you've got a graduation to go to. Uh, so congratulations to Baby Bragg, <laughs> who's not so I much I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So we've been talking to Al Bragg, who's a visiting professor at New York Law School, the former chief deputy AG for New York State, that's attorney general for New York State, and a candidate for Manhattan DA. Thanks again, Al, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. F-A-Q. Thank you for listening. FAQ NYC is brought to you by the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research out of NYU's School of Social Work. This week, our guest was Al Bragg, a visiting professor at New York Law School and former Chief Deputy Attorney General for New York State and a candidate for the Manhattan DA. I'm Christina Greer, my co-host Harry Siegel, and I thank you for listening. As always, our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and mastered this episode. Thanks for tuning in. Stay safe. Speaking of people waking up, let me play this very brief clip. Wait, wait. No. Give me the clip.